0: everyone. Welcome to My Two Cents with Tawanda Harris. This is a podcast dedicated to educators, for educators, and by educators. Yes, it's all about encouraging. It's all about sharing strategies. It's all about going on an educational journey with each other. You are not alone and I hope that when you finish listening to this podcast you feel like you went on a journey with educators around the world. Thank you for tuning in to My Two Cents. So what's the state of literacy right now? I don't know. I think that it changes each and every day. It depends on what you're, what day you're asking and how you're asking it and where you're asking it, it changes from day to day. I had the opportunity to sit down with Kaz and Cornelius Minor of the Minor Collective. And we just talked about, you know, where we are as far as literacy is concerned in schools and in education. It was such a great conversation and... Of course, we could have gone on and on and on, so this is a two-part podcast, and right now, we're going to listen in on part one of two episodes. Enjoy. So we're so excited to have the uh, Dream Team. I don't know, how how can I explain how awesome the both of you all are, Kaz and Corn, today on the My Two Cents podcast? Um, we're going to jump right in. Um, and we're going to start now with your teacher journey. Can you share with the folks your teacher journey?, yeah,
1: I'll picture the cast. I mean, we met at school, like you know, so
2: so yeah, we very we- much
1: have the same journey. yeah,
2: Similar, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to also think about like before Corn and I met, we were both kind of like operating in like different entities. so i I started my career out at, in in Chicago. At the University of Chicago, I worked at this nonprofit, and so my job was to like employ tutors from U- the University of Chicago and like put them in different places on the South side. And so I just saw, I just saw so many enlightening uh, things in schools on the South side. So for folks who haven't been there, it's literally like 99.5% Black African American student populations. And then there was like me and my 21 year old white self from the Midwest. And it's like, you go from, you think, you know, everything. And it was a really, really like humbling experience. So I brought that with me. Um, when I be- and then I moved to New York city and I joined like the New York city teaching fellows. And that's where I met Cornelius um, at a school in downtown Brooklyn uh, that we have, you know, we made a lot of special memories there, but I was a 23 year old special education teacher teaching 21 year old 11th and 12th graders my first year of teaching it was wild (laughs) I learned so much and then I you know a lot of things happened and then I spent my last five years of teaching um in a neighborhood called Sunset Park in deep in Brooklyn I taught fourth and fifth graders and so that's sort of like my inside school-based experience as classroom teacher that's
0: like a huge extreme so you said you were teaching seniors and then you went to the elementary space i did i have a
2: license that no longer exists probably for good reasons (laughs) (laughs) so my licensure is middle childhood special education and it's like grades five through nine and in new york state you can teach one under or one over And so when you get to ninth grade, if you're teaching in a high school, they will put you wherever. And at the time, and I mean, now we have a teacher shortage, like nothing we have ever seen, but, you know, New York city has always been like starving for, for teachers, especially like in special education and science. And so they just threw me in there and they're like, girl, you just do you. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I learned a lot. though. It's where a lot of my teacher agency comes from is because I was always having to make decisions on my own. so.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. And then yeah. corner with the teacher upstairs with the cute little fuzzy bunny. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <I> love <laughs> so, it. <laughs> yeah, so Castle teacher ninth grade the year that we like connected, and well, you had a twelfth grade advisory in my room. Yeah. So, um, so I was the weird teacher. Like I've always been the weird one. So like, um there was always something ridiculous happening in my classroom. So we'd be building skateboards. We would be like knocking down walls to make room for like a science area. So it was always something weird going on. And um, and I took my kids on a field trip to an animal shelter in the Bronx one day. Um, that's when I was in the Bronx and I, and they were like, yo, Mr. Miner, like this rabbit is real cute. We should adopt this rabbit. And so I'm on a field trip in the middle of this field trip <laughs> and the kids hustled me into adopting a rabbit. And I remember talking to the lady at the place and the lady was like, well, you know, the rabbit has been abused. So you're gonna need to nurse it back to health. This rabbit probably won't live that long. So if you adopt it, you can work really hard and you won't have the rabbit for too long. And so I was like, bet, I'm not gonna have a rabbit for too long. That rabbit lived for 13 years. So-
2: (laughs) long into our marriage
1: (laughs) so that rabbit was in my classroom chilling refusing to die not going anywhere um but it was amazing you know like um because like uh you know there's something about like cultivating life Um, and there's something about looking at a thing that has been written off um, and and forming the kind of community that can support that thing into longevity you know and so that rabbit became a metaphor for what I was trying to do in books that rabbit became a metaphor for what I was trying to do in in writing Um, and so so that's how we met like so Cass's advisory would meet in my room and her like grown seniors would like be like brushing my rabbit
2: Um, they (laughs) would brush Jeffrey but then they started bringing a lint roller because you know it's Brooklyn and they're trying to look their you know to the nines <laughs> so they would like brush the rabbit and then they would like you know lint roll <laughs> their clothes we don't want to like you know funny fuzz yeah. on themselves
1: yeah but you know Cass and I always say that like you know we had, um, you know, we're from a different era, right? Like right now this era is defined by mandate and compliance and demands that teacher conform to like different things, you know? And we're from the era where, they were like, you know what, like if you love kids and you alive and you got something to offer, we need you in New York City. And so in so many ways, we were given kind of creativity and flexibility to do our thing that, you know, I often give credit to our first principal. You know, I remember once sitting in her office and she asked me, she's like Cornelius, why are you on this planet? Like, what is your gift? Um, and I was like, well, I like skateboarding, you know, I think I'm really good with like, you know, young men. Um, and she was just like, then how are we writing this in? to what you do in this institution and so I taught you know a physics course for seniors but through the lens of skateboarding and so we skateboarded all over New York City I took kids to New Orleans post-Katrina and we like did service and activism and skateboarding you know and and she made a lot of that possible she's like if this is your gift on the planet why aren't you giving it to children through this institution um you know and so I think Cass and I came up in this way, where nobody ever told us no for like the first decade of our career, where if it was a thing that we could imagine and we could hustle to get it done, then we did it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that's that's pretty pretty deep. Um, it's yeah. it's interesting as you were talking. I was thinking about um, my first year teaching and mm-hmm. my principal, um, and she would allow me to do a lot, but it was more so I was allowed to do those things because my test scores were high. Mm-hmm. And it was like, man, like wow, that's where your autonomy came. Like, if you could prove that your children, your students, could score high on this test that measured one part of who they were, mm-hmm. then you had the um, the privilege to, uh, you know, explore other things. And I'm thinking, wow, how unfair yeah. that is. You know mm-hmm. how because there were teachers that did not produce high test scores that were amazing teachers and they literally would walk into first and foremost connect with students Mm -hmm. but because their test scores weren't where they needed to be then administrators were in their rooms constantly they were asked to what lesson are you on what you know what are you doing and i remember my mentor teacher um Mm -hmm. i would do her it was funny now this is hilarious we had to do bulletin boards right and so we would get like a grade which is like (laughs) the silliest ever, so we would have a score. And so like every Friday or whenever we had to put up new bulletin boards, there was a sheet, a rubric, and we would get a score on it. And so my mentor teacher, she was amazing at connecting with her students. There was such a community. When you walked in, you felt like you were breaking bread with the students. Lunchtime, oh, there was a circle time going to happen in there and they would run the whole thing. Well, she was horrible at doing her bulletin boards. So the deal was, all right, fine. We're a team, there are five of us. This is what I'm going to do. We would see administrators walking around, we're running down, we would make double of everything. Okay, we'll cut out a set of this, a set of this, and this is what we're doing. And I'm literally like stapling and putting it around and all of that stuff. And then finally they walk around and they give us a grade, no problem. She's still able to connect with her students and she got a good score. But when yeah. you think about that, how like backwards, like how absolutely. backwards
1: absolutely is that? Uh,
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: That's, that's wild. You know, it's interesting. Like, um, so my, like as a special educator, like I've taught in a lot of different realms, right? And so I've taught general education a little bit, but my time has mostly been spent like through the lens of working with children who are really operating at, at really different, I um, think like they're thinking really differently than a lot of their peers. And so one of the things that I always had to work for was sort of like um, that, rec- that recognition or affirmation that a lot of other teachers get by having high test scores because working in like a special class in a community school, you're not, you know, children are not gonna produce like whatever scores that are shiny or like golden to school administration. So from very early in my career, I was just like, well, this is just not part of my paradigm. Like, I just can't even pay attention to this metric as part of my self-worth. So I feel like really blessed in a lot of ways because that was just never part of my, literally, like it didn't enter my mental stream. So my last few years of teaching, I'm so proud of them because I was working with a group of 12 students who had all kind of like the world, like so many barriers, But we did really, really rich and great work. And part of what I really learned to do was like, I mean, people think it's corny to talk about this stuff. But when I'm talking about like activating prior knowledge, like operating from kids FEMA, like hovering around that zone of proximal development, I got really, really good at that because there was no other option for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then that's when you get other people like peeking in your room. Oh, what are they doing? And it's like, well, I'm teaching, I'm meeting kids where they're at. And I have high expectations of them, mm-hmm. right? And so that's something that um, I feel really proud of, and that's something I'm not sure I would have really like developed so early on in my career if I had students who were scoring really highly on exams. Yeah. yeah,
1: and we were encouraged to think that way. Again, we had this amazing school. We were a member of a consortium of several schools in New York City where we didn't even subscribe to standardized tests, so our kids didn't sit for them. We came up with in-house standardized assessments where kids would essentially do a dissertation on a topic to like prove that they had met proficiency. And then there would be community members and people you know who worked at the school who would be on your committee. And so like I, with a bunch of my kids, we built a skate park. And that's how we were able to demonstrate knowledge of physics that like, you know, so you have to to clarify,
2: because lots of people will be listening in this podcast. So just to clarify, Cornelius is talking about the coalition of essential schools. And there's a bunch of group, a group of schools called the consortium. And so I don't know if this is still true, but back then, if you were in high school, you had to take the math regions, which is like common core standards, whatever standardized test your state has, the math and ELA test, you did have to sit for, but for science and social studies and things like physics or any other yeah. standardized courses, you, you essentially have, like, corn is talking about, like, a high school dissertation project that took place of yeah. those
1: tests. Yeah, and so I spent a lot of time really thinking about what does this subject area mean in the world and in your community, and how can we bring it to life through what you do every day, um, and so kids solve real problems, you know, um, and that was how we measured proficiency, and then they had to show those solutions to members of the community, and it had to pass that test. And so when you got to explain to auntie how how you understand this physics, that's a whole different kind of stress, you know, (laughs) that's you know, like, um, but kids rose to that, you know, and so like, you know, and so so bubbling in answers on a sheet wasn't a thing that I learned to think about and it wasn't a thing that I learned to fear. Um, right, so if we can build a skate park, I can tell you that gravity is nine point eight meters per second square. That ain't nothing, you know. Like and so like that kind of stuff was like really um, fun for us, and it and it has kind of left its impact. So even though we don't work that way anymore, like when people start throwing scores and metrics, I'm just like, but what can kids do, and how do we know, right? Yeah. That like you said earlier that these these examinations are one day of a kid's you know 180. Right. And so, so this idea that, that, you know, and we all know the danger of a single story and that's what a test is. It's a single story. It's a snapshot of that, that one day. Right. And so whenever one is presented with a single story, the way that you undo that damage is you tell counter stories. And so I always ask like, what are the counter stories? What other kinds of assessments? How am I going to show kids mastery in other ways? And so,
0: yeah. Yeah. So you all talked, um, you both talked a little bit about your classroom and your students. So I want you to just describe for me what your, how your students would describe your classroom.
1: Wow. (laughs) It's a lot. Um, I mean, so,
2: go ahead, Corinne.
1: I mean, we shared, again, we shared so many of the same students. So I think that they would call it um, home, you know, and we're still in touch with a lot of them, right? And so, um, yeah, like, I know Cass is a lot more organized than I am and so Cass's Cass's situation was a lot you know it was like you know Cass had her ducks in a row um my situation like I have always just like lived in like the beauty and the majesty of chaos right and so so, a balance. so
2: it, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's always a balance and you know what's interesting I remember so like my last day of like, classroom teaching before I started working at Teachers College was, like, you know, anybody who's left, like, a school community, like, knows what it means to, like, leave kind of, like, what might be your last group of kids within a school, and I remember we did, like, this activity where we're all, like, kind of, like, leaving, like, you know, markers of, like, memories and, and things like that, and they told me, they told me, they're, like, well, you know, you're really, silly, but you're also, like, very serious, and I think that's, like, a good describer, like, a good description of my teaching persona, um, it is, like, you know, Tawanda, I imagine this of you, too, like, those really high expectations that come with the level, I mean, for me, it's, like, look, kiddos, you gotta get your stuff together, because life, you know, life ain't no crystals there, (laughs) like, that's real, yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean, yeah, um, but we're not gonna, but the other, Thing I always carry with me is like we're gonna have a good time learning these things and we're gonna have a good time being together. Like you cannot like school, unfortunately, right now, just given this landscape of so many variables, like the pandemic, COVID, just staffing shortages. Like, I I I worry how kids are feeling about showing up to school. Like, what is their daily experience life? You know, many of us are in communication with teachers, and we know how hard it is for them right now. So you know, there's just like a lot of things that are whirling around in my mind. Absolutely. We try to navigate our our now.
1: Yeah, and that worry is a worry that I've always harbored. You know, I was a student who didn't have a great time in school, right? And so I've always thought about how can I literally make every second of our existence in this classroom um, a powerful experience for you? And so I was always armed with a poem. I always had stories to tell. I always had a book in my back pocket. Like every- I
2: we have to tell them. So when, I, when we were teaching, we have so many stories. People, this is fun to wonder because people often, we don't often get to see these stories. Uh, so when I was teaching with Corn in our school, those first few years, like Cornelius was known for this poem that he performed in the cafeteria. And you're gonna laugh and probably not be so surprised, but it was, the, it was literally called the chicken nugget poem. This poem was literally about a piece of chicken. Love I'm not him. even kidding you. It was about a piece of chicken. And the children, these seventh graders, these like just beautiful Brooklyn seventh graders thought it, you know, however they were outside of school, when they heard Cornelius like say this poem, you saw them be children again. And it was like the most beautiful thing. And, you know, as I recount, like my falling in love with Cornelius, that's is one of like the strongest imprints in my mind, like witnessing children see this man goofy is all get out, <laughs> talking yeah. about chicken nugget. And like, it's a poem and it's literacy and it's all the things that you want for your own child to yeah. experience this school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and even today, healthy,
1: you know, yeah. I mean, today we were waiting on the bus and the bus was late today. So like there's a bus that's supposed to come get the kids to take them home. And the bus didn't show up for like 30, 40 minutes after school. And so I'm standing in the schoolyard and I just started telling stories. And then like all these kids just gather around and listen to the story, like, you know, and and I didn't have not a single book, not a sheet of paper, but I'm like, all right, what's your name? All right, Kevin, this story is about King Kevin. And like, just starting to tell stories, you know? Wow. And so, but that's always been like, if we have a moment where I can capture your imagination, even if it's two minutes while we wait on a bus, if we have a moment where I can like have you think about something that you've never thought about before, I'm going to take that moment, you know, because like, you know, every second I'm in a classroom is an opportunity like, and I know this sounds super cliche, but it's an opportunity to catalyze something great in another human. Right. And, um, and so like, why would we waste that? you know, and so like, you know, I remember even before the pandemic, one of the things I was trying to teach myself was how to make balloon animals. I was just like, if I'm in the lunch line and the lunch line I'm mad long, I need to make a balloon animal so that people going to have something to do. I'm so telling don't tear you. The Clown yeah.
2: skills, We all need them as teachers. Yeah.
1: All of that stuff, but like magic tricks, balloon animal, like all that stuff, because like, you know, even, you know, I got good at even like the interim time, I used to like make up rhymes with kids in the stairwell on the way to the cafeteria. And mm-hmm. so like we were, I was on the third floor and the cafeteria was in the basement. And so that's three flights of stairs that you're going down. That's about seven minutes a time that you got with kids. Now you could be quiet and be screaming at them to stay in line, or you can have mad rhymes and they'll stay in line because they wanna hear what you have to say, yes. you know? And so like every moment, like, and so when I think about like describing my classroom I don't think it was like, I don't think I can describe my classroom, rather I can describe my existence, right? Like the, this is how I want to exist in community with children. So
2: it's funny though, because I think, and, and so Wanda, you might feel like this too. I think about like, you know, for me as a teacher, it was all about creation. It was about imagining, it was about like discovering yes. and for Corn, he was like the book guy. He was like reading with kids all the time. And then we reflect. We're like, how do we get to this place where we're telling, like, whole districts, like, how to be? And we're just, like, all, honestly, like, all we want, all I want to do is, like, make stuff with kids. Like, all corn wants to do is, like, read with kids. And it's, like, what happened to this landscape where we are now in these yeah. positions where,
0: well, and I don't I know. Think, you know, it's really helping educators to understand that it's not a this or that but it's a this and that like it's all connected you know it Mm -hmm. beautifully just weaves together in a student's learning experience and Mm -hmm. so if we're not showing them how this learning connects to them Mm-hmm. as well as connects to their world, then they're going to see this as a worksheet that I just need to finish, or I just yeah. need to finish this assignment, or did I get an A? I don't care yeah. you know, what the process was of me getting this A. Did I get an A because I need to show my parents that I am getting good grades? It's like, how do we shift students from this way of thinking of, I need to complete a task versus this is going to help me be a better human?
1: Well, I think the answer is like, we don't shift students. We shift ourselves first, yeah. right? Like if yeah. you want to change the world, you start from your corner, right? That's big boy from Outcast, Humble Mumble, right? Like, and so this <laughs> idea, it. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so,
1: so I think we stay looking at kids talking about, well, I want kids to value the learning process. I want kids to value what's important, but then when we look at ourselves, we, the main ones chasing scores, right? Oh, yeah. And so like, so we can't desire what we don't embody you know and so I'm really all about that like it has to be and all the work that Cass and I are doing right now is inner work with teachers that like when you have a strong core these winds that blow in education don't shake you you know and so that's
2: real because you know I I had the same exact conversation with a group of teachers last week and you know they were talking about the pressure to like plow through curriculum and like how it's coming from families and you know, we named it. I I was like, y'all like, it's atmospheric. It is in the atmosphere. And so the thing that you can lean on, the only thing that you really have control over is like how you are internalizing, interpret and interpreting those energies that are coming for you. And so I, I believe the best thing we can do for, for teachers and with teachers is to equip them with that agency that the Mm -hmm. three of us like built in our bellies long, long ago, and it has never quite left us. But I I don't know, I see, um, you know, just all of the things, policies, COVID, it's just really impacting teacher agency and their ability to feel confident in making those calls for their kids. It's, yeah.
0: It's, yeah. I, um, I've been doing the, uh, so I've been having way too much fun with these TikToks. Like, I feel like it's a great. I thing <laughs> so, I am like, you know, at first, yes. I'm like, oh, let me just get a certain amount of followers so I can go live. I got the followers and now I don't go live. I'm just having fun over there. So, you know, yes. I'm over there. But what is so interesting is I get to, um, there's no like polish behind your videos. It's, I could throw a hat on and shoot a TikTok. I could be in my bedroom and shoot a TikTok. Like there's like no criteria of what you can shoot, um, how you can shoot a TikTok. But what the benefit that I find is with the TikToks, I get direct access to how teachers Mm -hmm. are feeling. Yeah. Like directly. There's like, there's no protocols in place. There aren't any, you know, they say what they need to say and that's it. But what I'm finding is I'm going through, and of course with music and having a little bit too much fun and pulling my daughter in at the same time, but I'm doing this and I'm putting like little nuggets in there in my TikToks. And we're talking about 60 seconds. You know, after 60 seconds, the attention is lost, but they are so engaged with what it is because it's almost like no one's talking about how to fill their toolbox on how to center students in the classroom, how to center their experiences? Because, like you said, Cass, they are, we're talking about curriculum, 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 curriculum. Like, how do we get through this? How many standards can we teach? All of that, and it's like, yeah, that's great, but that's a piece. That's a small piece of yeah. you know what we want our students to be.
1: You know, and it's not a surprise that we have to find inspiration outside of school, right? That's not surprising. You know, one of the things, you know, our great friend Marcus Hardin, one of the things that he says all the time to us is that you can't heal in the same place that made you sick. Right. And so we're at school, like engage in all of this toxic behavior. Um, that is making educators sick, that has been making kids sick, you know, been making kids with disabilities, queer kids, black and brown kids, poor kids, right, has been making kids sick. And so that teachers are turning to TikTok, to Twitter, to Facebook groups to find ways to heal is not surprising. And I think for a big, you know, for, for Cass and I, our work is really thinking about how do we reclaim these spaces that have been colonized away from us, right? The school is no longer the place where you can do your healing, but it can be still. And we believe that. Um, and so a big part of our work is that kind of both internal and institutional transformation that has to happen so the school can be a place of healing again, so.
0: That's good. Yeah. Okay, so you recently retweeted. I went back, you, you, you tweeted this last year, 2020 and oh my goodness it's it's kind of like timeless like I think I retweeted your retweet it was just like a timeless tweet but I'll read it really quickly and we'll just kind of have some conversation around okay. this um you said the world was upside down but I was ready because I read books mm-hmm. so can we kind of talk about or have yeah. a conversation around how, you know, this shows up in our students' literacy lives or just Absolutely. the impact?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think all the time, um, first of all, like I have never really been a great student. Like, um, you know, I, I you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks a lot about how um, he says, I was built for a library, not necessarily a classroom. And I think that applies aptly to me, that I don't do well in classrooms. If I have to go, like, I'm the worst student, but you put me in a library where I can read and find my own stuff, and, you know, like, that stuff is amazing, you know. Um, And so one of the things that I think a lot about is everything that we're experiencing right now, and I'm using the words of Gil Scott Heron, the poet, right, ain't no new thing. Right, People have suffered in these ways before. It ain't necessarily been pandemic, but our communities have been deprived of resources before, right? You know, like it hasn't necessarily been, you know, police shootings or gentrification, but our communities have had our rights compromised before, right? You know, and so, so I always want to think like this pain that I am feeling, this discomfort that I am feeling, who has felt it before and how did they navigate it, right? And so for me, the answer always been in books. Right, And so when pandemic hit and people were like, oh my gosh, we don't know what way is up. I'm like, but Elaine Brown knew when she led the Black Panthers. So let me read and see what she got to say, right? Audrey Lord knew when she was writing Sister Outsider. So let me read and see what she got to say. Sun Ra knew when he was composing music that was out of this world, literally. So let me see what he's got to say. And so I just really believe that like, I don't have to wait for somebody to give me the answer when there are people who have already committed the answers to page, right? Um, and so I've gotten really good at teaching myself, okay, like, um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about Sun Ra and his orchestra, You know, I'm a huge jazz fan, right? And so Sun Ra kind of comes into the jazz and he's just like, I'm gonna turn it all in a different direction. And I'm gonna honor both ancestors and the cosmos. um, And I'm going to help people to feel something real again. This thing that has been commercialized, I wanna help people feel something real again. I'm like, well, that's what I wanna do in school, right? This thing that has been taken over by the testing industrial complex, this thing that has been co-opted by Pearson or any number of these companies, right? Like I want people to feel something real again. So why can't I read how Sunrod did that in jazz and apply that to what I'm doing in a classroom? Um, and so really that's where it comes from that I don't think that there is a problem that we face that somebody hasn't faced before in some other like way. Right. And um and so I get excited by that, like that we have so many elders and ancestors who have answered these questions and grappled with these problems before. Right. And so I just want to see how they did it. Um, and I think that that's how we honor them, right? That people are always, you know, we're about to have Indigenous Peoples' Day come up, right? And, and so how do we honor those many, many ancestors who, whose lives were taken violently from them? How do we honor those folks whose lands were stolen from them? Well, we honor them by like, one of the ways that we honor them is by kind of like learning lessons and not just learning them, but then living them. Um, that's what gets exciting.
0: Remember, this is part one of two episodes. Catch the next episode for the second half of the conversation.